Hi, my name is Ellie Cody, and this is Manhattan Sideways. On today's episode, I interview Lorcan Otway of William Barnacle Tavern, Theater 80, and the Museum of the American Gangster. Here's what Betsy Bober Pallavi, founder of Manhattan Sideways, had to say about Lorcan. William Barnacle Tavern has a long, rich history on St. Mark's Place, and Lorcan Otway never tires of telling its story. And I, personally, always enjoy listening. Each time he shares a part of it, I learn something new. Lorcan knows every inch of the space, as this is where he grew up. His father, Howard Otway, acquired the building from the same people that originally ran the place as an illegal nightclub during the Prohibition era. Wearing a hard hat, I have followed Lorcan down the steps into the basement on more than one occasion. It is here that he speaks of the smuggling tunnels, booby-trapped rooms, escape routes, and one corner in which the Riverstone Foundation, left over from the space's origin as a cabin built by a Dutchman in the 1630s, are visible. Upstairs, in the tavern, 14 types of absinthe are offered, sourced globally, and Larkin is always happy to chat with people at the bar about the rich history of this drink, illegal in America between 1912 and 2007. The tavern has a strong connection to the East Village. Between the 30 signatures signed by stars on the street outside, each tied in some way to the neighborhood, its impact on New York's theater, museum, and tavern culture, as well as that Lorcan's father had planted the first trees on St. Mark's Place. It is easy to understand why Lorcan describes 80 St. Mark's as an anchor in the neighborhood. He has certainly gone above and beyond his goal to keep it relevant to the moment while preserving the past. If I could just start by having you introduce yourself and telling me the name of the place where we are right now. I'm Lorcan Otway and we're at Historic 80 St. Mark's, which is made up of Theater 80, William Barnacle Tavern, and the Museum of the American Gangster. Can you please tell me about your connection to this place and about your father's background in theater and Hollywood? Dad comes from a family that has been involved in theater since the 1660s, 1670s. The first that we know of in our family that was in theater is Thomas Otway, who was a a playwright. And Dad uh, was conceived in Belfast during the Anglo-Irish War. His family are Anglo-Irish, so uh, as Dad used to say, we were too Irish for the English and too English for the Irish. We're related to, for example, Sir Roger Casement, who was hanged for his part in the 1916 uprising. So the family felt it was a good time to leave and went to Canada for a short time, and then Dad was brought to the U.S. as a child he had an argument with his dad when he was 13, ran away from home, began uh, digging coal. Dad then went from uh, coal mining at 15, he went into theater as a young actor, and he also was by then a published writer at 15. During World War II, my dad was a pacifist, and he joined the Morris Evans G.I. Hamlet which is where he met a number of his later connections in theater. Brian Ahern, Teek DaCosta was in that. And uh, so he wrote a couple of novels and had just finished a play and was looking for the proper place to stage his play. And uh, he wandered into this place and met Walter Scheib, who was the front man for the gang that ran it during Prohibition as a speakeasy. My father walked in and said, I'd love to build a theater here but no one's going to loan me the $64,000 to buy it. And Scheib said, oh, I'll loan you the money. 
What Dad didn't realize is that there was approximately $12 million hidden in the basement. So he was looking for a patsy. He was looking for somebody who would own it for a short period of time, lose it back to him, and then he could open up the safes. And if his boss turned up, he could blame the short-term owner for the loss. But luckily, as we were, Dad and I were excavating the theater, uh, we found the two hidden safes, which when he found, he called Shive and said, uh, I'm too curious to leave these safes closed, but I'm too cautious to open them without you. So, Did uh, he have any idea about the background of the theater at that point? At, by that point, we knew that to the extent that he had worked in the speakeasy, that Shive was, as they say, mobbed up. And Dad became very cautious of uh, Mr. Scheib. Uh, he had said to me that he wanted Scheib here when he opened the safes because if there was nothing in them, there was no way to prove it to Scheib. And if there was, Scheib would have never believed that he didn't take something for himself. So Walter showed up with a safe cracker saying that he had forgotten the combination of the safe from 1933 to 1964. And for the next few hours in the middle of the night, Scheib and the safe cracker crouched over the safe while he tried to work the cylinders. And finally the safe opened and it was a complete Geraldo Rivera moment. If you remember the Al Capone uh, vault, it was completely empty. So Scheib looked a bit uh, downcast at that point and said, well, let's just make sure we'll peel the bottom of the other safe, which is the quickest way in. So he turned the safe over. He cut through the bottom of the safe with a cold chisel. He started pulling out newspaper-wrapped bundles of $100 gold certificates. And we found $2 million in gold certificates. And Scheib took the money. He didn't give us a dime, by the way. We still owed him the $64,000. And he built the Promenade Hotel. Well, in Florida. In Florida, in Miami, which is still there. What happened was, Dad then did go bankrupt and went into hiding because he was afraid that Scheib was going to come and break his legs for falling behind in the payments. As it turned out, Scheib, according to the Scheib family, had really lost interest in the building because he found what he was looking for. So he gave my dad something of a grace period. And during that period, your good man, Charlie Brown, opened and we were able to pay off the mortgage. So it all worked out for the best uh -huh. at the end. So let's talk about Scheib a little bit and yes. who his bosses were. He was a compact, short, tough little guy. And he worked for a Bavarian bootlegger by the name of Frank Hoffman, who had been a curb trader. And Hoffman had fled the um, days before the beginning of World War I so that he wouldn't be included in the Kaiser's draft and expected that he would be welcomed in when he came to America. But he came at a time when there was really heightened uh, uh, anti-German feeling. So he found himself working in the snow and the heat and the rain out in front of the stock exchange selling penny stocks. Prohibition came around and he realized that there was a better way to make money. So he and a fellow named Bill McCoy, who was a New England boat builder, came up with the idea of a line of ships that were registered in Canada selling alcohol just in international waters, just beyond the U.S. Uh, boundaries. And at first they weren't breaking the law. They were uh, selling in international waters to fast boats that were built by, by McCoy. But as things progressed, they realized that the system was working, so they opened this place and began uh, not only selling directly as a, as a nightclub, but this was kind of a distribution point. So they were making approximately a million a week during Prohibition for 13 years. 
and that was Hoffman. Hoffman, yeah. Hoffman and McCoy? Uh, yeah, uh, Bill McCoy. Bill McCoy. And uh, so Scheib was the public face. So Hoffman comes into the story in uh, 1922. Okay. This was the main street in Kleindeutschland, Little Germany. And the building had been owned by a number of individuals and uh, Jewish organizations. Hoffman, who was a Bavarian, this would have been a neighborhood natural for him to know well and, and develop. And it was also the center of the tough Jews of the Lower East Side. So the lower echelon gang members are Jewish, and then um, the elite of the gang are Germans uh, born in Germany who came to the States and settled in this district in New York. So Hoffman uh, acquires the building to build the, the speakeasy. The reason I say acquires is that there's no record of him actually buying the building until uh, in the middle of Prohibition, after um, Capone is brought up on uh, tax evasion, and he at this point is working as part of the Capone syndicate. Uh, Hoffman is. Hoffman is. The, the Capone syndicate didn't actually micromanage, but they organized independent gangs, such as Hoffman's gang. And so um, he begins to take precautions to hide the financial connections here. And he takes out a massive number of mortgages on the same day uh, where they're uh, demand mortgages. Minutes after they uh, uh, get the money, they give the money back. And so for a police force where the, the uh, head of the police force has a uh, sixth grade education and the average cop is semi-literate, it was enough to uh, create a uh, paper trail that they just would not consider following. Yeah, yeah. Policing at that time was you wanted to catch the fellow in the act rather than spend time uh, developing a, a paper case. So just to clarify, Hoffman, in taking out the mortgages, was trying to cover his connection to Capone? Exactly. Well, trying to cover his connection to ownership of the building here. Okay. And in fact... Uh, for example, two of the corporations, Rita Holding and Rio uh, Realty, Hoffman is the chairman of the board of both, and his wife is the secretary. During this period at the buildings department, there is uh, what they call the, uh, the e-cards. Every time there is a change made in a building, it's noted in the, uh, the e-cards. Our file from uh, 1958 back, simply holds a letter from the city council during prohibition saying don't bother to inspect everything is fine the city then basically erased all traces of this building from the city records so that even though we are a classic pitched roof building that uh, historians have found built in uh, in 1830, the early 1830s. In our official records, it says that the building was built in 1920. Interestingly enough, they picked prohibition as the date for saying when the building uh, begins, as they are creating a new identity for the building in the 50s, when they're trying to make up for the fact that the city government was very involved in um, hiding the crimes that were going on here. There have been many mysteries that you've uncovered yourself about this space. Indeed. In other words, uh, why the wrappings for the newspaper when we uh, rediscovered them in 2007 are not from uh, 1933, but from 1945, from November of 1945. And uh, what we discover is that Hoffman comes home for a short period of time. 
Scheib retires from the place. There are newspaper articles that he's going down to Florida to build a hotel, and he builds his first hotel in Florida. But weeks later, he's back here operating the place, and Hoffman's disappeared. So something had happened on the night of November 7th, 1945. And so my wife and I, when we discovered this, set out to solve the question, and we discover that Frank Hoffman and Hiratega disappear forever, fall off the face of the earth that night, but that there were three people in the basement. And so the task for the next seven years was to discover who that person was down in the basement with them, presumably acting as a bodyguard as they moved the bulk of the money that had been put aside to pay the taxes should they ever be caught. It took us seven years, but we uh, believe we've solved the case. I wrote a book, The Girl in the Safe, because it's the discovery of Hia Ortega that begins to lead us in this direction. We put the book aside, uh, I've written a uh, screenplay for a film, and we're now in development with uh, a number of friends of mine in the film industry. And um, the idea being that the book is actually more the entire story of my family's immigration, the uh, history of this building since the 1630s, but the film is uh, that period from 1915 till uh, 1945 and Hoffman's death and the search that my wife and I go through in, in filling out his life and death and uh, gives a solution to the what I, what I refer to as a plausible solution to a jazz age mystery because at the end of the day we're dealing with a 70-year-old uh, cold case murder. The murder of... Frank Hoffman and Hia Ortega. And do you know the name of the film and when it will be released? The working title, which I hope we keep, is The Girl in the Safe. It is about 90% um, the, the facts we've uncovered and then 10% speculation based on those facts. Uh, as I say, a plausible explanation of what happened. So I don't know if you can tell me this because I, d I don't want any spoilers, but you, you said that H Hia Ortega and Franz Hoffman disappeared. Were their bodies found? No, they, they, they fell off the face of the earth. Just, okay. And for Hia, it's always been um, a matter of all we know about her is this short few days uh, in 1945 and... I'm always uh, hesitant to talk about ghost stories because I, I never believe anybody else's ghost stories. But uh, growing up, my family and I and staff at Theater 80 have seen Hia in the basement for now 50-some-odd years. And she's been uh, kind of an active part of the theater family, and we were actually very protective of her as a result. But um, we really feel that Hia has remained a part of the Theater 80 family ever since uh, that, that night in 1945. How does so she interact with you, or how, what, what does she do in the basement? Very often, people will run into her in the basement watching people work, especially if we're working on things to do with the theater, and just standing in the corner, and you'd think she's flesh and blood. And uh, people who don't know the story, you've then looked down and looked up, and she's not there. Late night, I'll be working in the theater, and she'll look into the room from uh, the doorway or so. And uh, it's always surprising because you begin to say something to her and then you realize, oh no, that's, that's Hia again, thinking that's my wife or something has come down. She, she's kind of just, a, we've, we've always felt that she's living or watching the life she didn't get to live being a performer. But she's always been seen as part of the Theater 80 crew. 
Wow. And she's, yeah. I guess, I mean, this is, this is such a simple term for it, but she's friendly. Oh, yeah. No, in yeah. fact, um, what's also strange is that, you know, the, the description that people usually have of, you know, the cold dread and all of this, um, there's a familiarity to seeing her. We had a, um, a brand new stage manager. His production had just come in. He knew nothing about the history of the building and all. He was working at a tech table down low, and he sees what he takes to be um, uh, an actor from another uh, production watching him work, and he looks down trying to think of something nice to say to her because she's quite cute, and he looks up, and she's not there, and there's no way out of the basement other than having squeezed past him. So he runs up from down below, and the staff backstage come to come see me, and I show him a photograph of here. He says, what do you mean she died 70 years ago? I just, I just saw her in the basement. And so she's, um, it, it's usually kind of, um, it's, it's not a terrifying haunting. Wow, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah, she's just part of the family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor, the Flatiron 23rd Street Partnership. After the break, I'll be talking to Lurkin about absinthe, the pre-colonial history of 80 St. Mark's, and the evolution of New York City. So don't go away. The Flatiron District, anchored by its namesake, the Flatiron Building, is a world-renowned dining and retail destination. Beyond notable award winners like Cosme on 22nd Street and retail flagships lining Fifth Avenue, the neighborhood side streets are packed with the type of hidden gems that everyone wants to know. Grab a roll at Australian Cafe Burke Street Bakery on 28th Street. Head over to 26th to browse the racks at French clothing boutique Noir Blanc. For a relaxation experience like no other, Inscape on 21st will guide your meditation. The Flatiron 23rd Street Partnership also hosts free events on the Flatiron Plaza, like the 23 Days of Flatiron Cheer Holiday Program and the Flatiron Summer Series, showcasing neighborhood faves. For insider info on neighborhood happenings, visit flatirondistrict.nyc or at flatironny. So if we could just take a step back and get a chronology of 80 St. Mark's as far back as you know. Oh, goodness. In this specific plot of land, sometime in the early 1630s, there was a Dutchman living in New Amsterdam down on the Battery who decided that he wanted the opportunities of living on the frontier. So he wandered up an Indian trail, which became Broadway, and he found a stream and followed the stream down to a little knoll where he gathered stones from the stream to build a small cabin. And you can actually still see the foundations of that cabin in our basement. Then Peter Stuyvesant built his farm here and we were in the eastern corner of the farm. And so he gave this land to his nephew, Nathaniel Wyckoff, who then built a manor in the middle of what is now St. Mark's Place. And the Dutch cabin was part of that whole property. Then in the 1830s, the Stuyvesant family began building row houses and built almost identical buildings from uh, what is now Avenue Way to 3rd Avenue. The property 80 St. Mark's Place is made up of two buildings, 78 and 80. 78 still has the pitched roof and skylights from the uh, 1830s building, which looks like the other 1830s buildings that were built at the time. The kind of who's who of the history here is, is, is extraordinary. In 1917, Leon Trotsky was printing Novi Mir, the new nation, across the street. And uh, living in Brooklyn, when the feds were seeking to deport him, 
he moved his family here to the unit of the building that's now our museum. And he lived here until he was deported in 1917. In 80, which is directly above us, Joan Mitchell, the painter, lived. And she was here when our family came. And uh, at that point, my dad and I started building the theater. We tore up the floor, the dance floor of the speakeasy and began to excavate down. And we were living in tents in the excavation. And Joan Mitchell took pity on us and moved up the block and we moved into Joan Mitchell's studio. 1939, Frank Sinatra began his career as a singing waiter here. When we built Theater 80, your good man Charlie Brown opened and launched the careers of Bob Balaban and Gary Berghoff. Gary Berghoff got the, the role of Radar and MASH because Otto Preminger came to see him in your good man Charlie Brown here and told his brother about him who made the movie MASH. Um, one of our ushers, uh, who, when I was a young teenager, I was the immediate supervisor of, I was the house manager, um, was an NYU student named Billy, who had a dangerous sense of humor and grew up to be Billy Crystal. We haven't yet spoken about the absinthe. Oh, absinthe, yes. Uh, back in 2007, absinthe was uh, legalized. It had been the victim of the French wine industry after the 1860s blight. It became the national drink of France. And so um, when the uh, French wine industry was trying to take the market back from the working class that were producing absinthe, and of course the wine growers you know, were the estates, they began a uh, worldwide um, uh, war on absinthe, claiming that it was a hallucinogen. In fact, it's a mild antibiotic and muscle relaxant. But uh, it's also very, very high proof. So people were, I will be the first to say, people were drinking much too much absinthe when you were drinking it instead of wine. But um, that year that it was legalized, we began carrying those absinths that were available. We now have, oh, at any given month, somewhere near 14 uh, absinths that we uh, serve in a very traditional way. Most bars want to throw the drink in front of you and get on to the next person as quick as they can. Um, it takes about a minute or two to properly serve a glass of absinthe. So we caramelize the sugar, we luce it slowly, Part of getting ready to drink a sipping drink is the slow and proper presentation. And we are also now introducing mead. We have uh, a cranberry mead, we have a oatmeal and raisin mead. So um, we think in these times that people are becoming more aware of the Vikings and the... Uh, uh, Game of Med Thrones. Yeah, Game <laughs> of Thrones. It's one of the oldest alcohols on earth. What drew you to stay involved in this space in 80 St. Mark's because it was oh, your goodness. dad's project. Right, and, and certainly um, at any point, any one of us could have sold out for enough not to work again. But my mother and I especially were dedicated to the idea that um, we weren't simply, uh, this wasn't a way of just keeping a roof over our heads, but that this was part of the uh, artistic patrimony of New York and this was an anchor in the neighborhood. When we first built Theater 80 in the 60s, the uh, Jazz Age was quickly dying a slow death, and uh, St. Mark's Place uh, looked in the summers the way the Bowery did with tons of broken glass shimmering on the sidewalk and no trees, and my dad planted the first trees on St. Mark's, and uh, the uh, downtown theater movement grew up around establishing a successful theater. And 
in these days that we are losing New York to a handful of people and the uh, property uh, taxes are driving small business and theaters out, um, we see ourselves being back at the same place we were in 1964, that we're a small uh, seed planted to keep New York a theatrical and artistic capital. Um, the idea that you could move the artistic capital of New York out to the boroughs and not have New York become abandoned by the rest of the world, part of why we're here, is that uh, we think that Manhattan has always been and should always be the cultural center of this country. How do you feel you maintain your footing in that goal? As in, how how do you bring people to the space? How do you convince people to support you? Oh goodness, you? yeah, that's the that's the that's the big question, isn't it? And I think it's by being authentic. Is that you know there's a tremendous uh, after Boardwalk Empire, uh, kind of a, a wave of fake speakeasies. Um, we uh, run the place not only as a historic institution, but the kind of tavern you'd want to go to. We don't have loud music. The food uh, that we have here, we have a wonderful uh, food service by Sivan and Ori that produce these artisanal sandwiches where they import the ingredients from around the world and match flavors you would never think to, and uh, they just burst alive. The museum is a, rather than kind of the glitzy uh, electronic trend of today, it's a story-based museum where we walk people through the history of organized crime in America. Can you tell me about some of the objects in the museum? Oh, yes. We have the bullets that were found in Fred Burke's weapons that were later test-fired to show that his weapons were used in St. Valentine's Day Massacre. We have two of the three death masks made of the man purported to be John Dillinger who was killed in front of the Biograph Theater and we'll see when the autopsy is done as we speak whether it is in fact Jimmy Lawrence or uh, John Dillinger. We have the safe where we found the two million dollars is up there and uh, we have all sorts of wonderful things all of which again tell the story that in America we're trapped between the thou shalt not laws of moral certainty and the enculturation towards liberty. Of course organized crime is right there in the middle to to facilitate the uh, those things that we feel are liberties in the face of the thou shalt nots. The productions were commercial theater which is my dedication to what I refer to as free speech theater because when you have a not-for-profit that curates the shows, very often you'll have a warped cross-section of the arts. Um, I've had productions here that I am politically completely opposed to. We had a uh, production about Yulia Tymoshenko uh, that portrayed her in a positive light, where personally I feel that she's a good-looking version of Donald Trump. And uh, yet I think that it's vital to have an open discussion in the arts. Art should disturb. Art should get people to think. And that's one of the reasons we're dedicated to commercial theater. So commercial theater means that the space is rented out. Exactly. We don't, we don't produce. My father... Uh, at one point made me swear that I would never produce in my theater, reminding me that uh, when he produced and directed the show that he did, he had two bad nights on one night, a bad night as a producer-writer and a bad night as a theater owner. He said, you know, always uh, share the risk. That's, I think, why we've been here 50 years, uh, 54, 55 years now. 
Did your father stay involved in 80 St. Mark's? Oh, yes. He died in the traces. Dad worked from his hospital bed in the upstairs and spent all but the last week of his life here directing the theater long after he could not get out of bed from his uh, advancing emphysema. And then my mother stayed involved right up to her death as well. Um, she, when it got to be too much for her to do the daily management, I more or less re- retired from my career in law and came to run the theater with and for her, but um, she would always be at the uh, the staff meetings and such right up till uh, maybe her last few months. And then uh, she spent about 48 hours in the hospital, but she uh, lived and died in this building. Um, I'm wondering when Jean got involved in the business. When when did you meet Jean? Oh, Jeannie, yeah. Yeah, Jeannie. Uh, Gee, Jeannie would kill me if I told you how long ago it was. You see, there she is. (laughs) saying, I'm right here. Jeannie and I, many years ago, when we were very young, we met and got married. Throughout my my life with Jeannie, she's been, uh, she would help on the mailing list when this was, uh, when we had the films here. Um, She's always been, uh, I always refer to her as my better three quarters because when there's a job to do, no matter what else Jean's doing, whether it's uh, waitressing or in law school, she'd just roll up her sleeves and jump in and help. So uh, even before she was part of the family, she was part of the family. Now, both you and Jeannie have law degrees. Can you tell me about how you feel that has contributed to your work here? Oh, goodness. Uh, Today... I would recommend everyone go to law school because we live in, I'm not one to say, you know, we live in an overly litigious society, but there are uh, people lining up to sue you every minute. And uh, if you have anything of value, you will be defending it right and left. Business, especially because, you know, the fact of the matter is as that 17% of 1% own everything, you have everybody under them scrambling to try and, keep a little piece of what's left over. And so uh, as we become a increasingly unfair society, we become an increasingly uh, angry and violent society. You know, I think that's uh, where we are politically today is that uh, with the turn of the Democratic Party towards laissez-faireism, um, there is really no voice other than one that, this isn't a political commercial, but there's one voice that is actually speaking for the bulk of the American uh, uh, population. And uh, the society is directed at uh, transferring all the wealth to that small percent and everybody else fighting over what's left. So I think that uh, being a lawyer today is an extraordinarily important uh, uh, part of your education. But as long as you also keep your moral integrity and remember what you're fighting for. And you think you've done that here? Oh yes, I mean we. It's been a series of long struggles to stay alive against so many different fronts, and part of it is the fact that uh, there are such limited resources today. You've spoken already about how the theater, how Theater 80, contributes to your overall philosophy of the space. Mm-hmm. But how do the three spaces play together? Exactly, there's a lot of cross promotion because of the fact that. This is the first time in the history of the building that kind of all the epochs come together. Uh, with the tavern, it's the, uh, during uh, intermission, it's where the audience comes for a drink, but also the idea that you could come to the museum and get a 
contextualized image of organized crime. And then you see how that created this theater and this space. And the uh, old movies that we showed here from 1970 to 1994, we project small clips of public domain film in the bar. So coming here, you really get a sense of the flow of time. And that one of the things that I love about people who've been here is that it always reminds them of wherever their home was because it's kind of timeless. And we're very careful about uh, the advertising that we have here. You know, everything from our posters for Mead that say, you know, party like it's 1399. Everything is, is thought out that it shouldn't clash with that sense of timelessness uh, when you come here. Okay, I have two things in mind. First, I want to ask how you've seen New York change over the time that you've been here and then how the business has responded to that change. Yes, that, in a word, New York has been stolen from the people that built it. There was a wonderful little book called um, St. Mark's Place is Dead, which says that uh, basically every generation has felt that uh, the demographic change is um, an end to St. Mark's Place. And yet, where I disagree with her is that she holds that the dissatisfaction of this generation is just another chapter in that story. This is the first time where instead of a new community emerging and being part of the the um, painter's palette that is New York, of many cultures learning from each other, contributing to each other, and keeping alive the core of their cultural experiences, you now have a small group of people that own the entire city. And so, for example, um, when we met with um, Gail Brewer in a, uh, a meeting of uh, small businesses, and it was 30 some of us who have held on against the odds and against all reason. Seven, eight times a day I'm offered unbelievable amounts of money to walk away from this. But instead, Jeannie and I work seven days a week for literally no money. I mean, we sometimes have uh, evenings where we don't know where our meal is going to come from to keep this place going. And Ms. Brewer says, so you're all here representing uh, businesses with uh, approximately 100 workers that make a million dollars. And we all laughed because statistically, small business no longer exists in New York. So they now define mid-sized business as a small business to create the legal myth that there is a program in city government for small business. And I completely believe that Ms. Brewer has um, the intentions to uh, create change, but to do so, this city has to stop doing studies and uh, holding meetings and accept that there is a place for those uh, small businesses which define the neighborhoods. We define the culture of New York City. And, and because at the end of the day, wealth doesn't trickle down. We've seen that poverty trickles up as Amazon becomes the only place to buy things in this country. Lord and Taylor closes. And so you're seeing an upward surge of poverty instead of a downward trickle of wealth. And that has to stop. And so I see us as not only being part of a cultural expression in some place where, you know, Fodor's has named us as one of the eight things to see in America, because it's, you know, you come and you see the sidewalk stars and you have the museum and all, but it's more than just that. It's a political statement, which is that the culture of a country comes from those who produce it, not those who purchase it. 
So in many ways, you know, I'm a folk musician. Our family gathered ballads for generations on my father's side. And uh, that's the definition of folk music. It's art created by and for the class that produces it. We produce all the classical stuff too, but we're writing to a class that isn't us. And in many ways, this is a folk museum and a folk business. And uh, so that's you know, what we're doing. We're getting, I think that's why people are so comfortable here, is that there are no pretensions. When you're writing for a class that isn't you, by nature is pretentious, whereas uh, folk culture is authentic by definition. It's, it's just been a huge honor to have inherited this role of keeping the family's uh, traditions alive. All right, well, thank you so much. Thank oh, you for spending so you. much time with us. <laughs> it was my great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Ellie, and this has been a podcast by Manhattan Sideways. If you're interested in learning more about this business or about the thousands of other small businesses on the side streets of Manhattan, be sure to check out our website, www.sideways.nyc, and follow us on social media, at NY Sideways. See you next time.